So Jairus, you uh, made me tear up with that last song, and now I'm supposed to speak. So, <laughs> um, It's wonderful to be here today and to worship with you all. Uh, I'm just so thankful for um, every time I get to come and meet brothers and sisters in Christ that maybe I didn't know before and get a chance to worship together and dig into the word together and it's such a blessing because uh, the Lord has made us all uh, one body together and the eternal life that we all enjoy and that we all look forward to um, all the blessings that will come with that but also our enjoyment of the Lord through that eternal life that we have even today um, that's a life that isn't just mine it isn't just yours it's ours and so when I look at each and every one of you, I see that, uh, that you are full of my Savior and that we share him together, and it's just a, a real treasure. So I'm thankful to be here, and um, if I can recover from <laughs> that song just always gets me. So um, let's pray. Father, we're thankful. Thankful for our time together. As we open up your word, we pray that you would guide us into the truth. And uh, Lord, that we would wrestle with our lives and see where our lives don't match up with what we know to be true in the gospel. And Father, that we would be convicted by your spirit, uh, not only to recognize where we need change, but to change. And Lord, we know that we can do nothing apart from you and from your son, Jesus Christ, and your Holy Spirit. And so we ask for his help, the help of Jesus Christ to change as we need to change. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So today we're going to uh, do an overview of the book of Galatians, and I'm going to do this with a particular theme in mind that is, uh, it runs throughout the book of Galatians. There are a few themes that you could do. You could pull out and do a, a survey of the book from a, a few different perspectives. But one, I think, is probably the most intense that Paul uh, brings out in his message if we're talking about um, practical things. And that is this idea that uh, we are one together in Christ and the gospel is what makes us one. And so um, these are the things that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about first how co gospel compromise divides. Can you guys see that okay? Okay. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be mostly in the New King James Version. So um, all that I'm going to have up here for the most part is just the text of Scripture. So you can follow along with me if you can't read this very well. But the first point is that gospel compromise divides. The second is that growth happens by grace through faith. And then the third is that grace motivates us to walk together. Now, Paul had planted uh, this church or group of churches, and uh, he had been involved with them, and he had taught them the gospel. And so they understood the gospel. They understood that Christ had died for all of their sins. They understood that Christ had risen from the grave, conquering death. They understood that they were justified freely by his grace through what Christ had done, they understood that their salvation was by faith alone apart from works. They understood that they were not obligated to live under the law for justification or sanctification. But by the time Paul writes this, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. This was probably Paul's earliest letter that he wrote, and he just was amazed that so quickly, so quickly, they were turning away from the gospel. And it's part of our nature. And this is something that a lot of times people ask me, why, if the Bible is so clear, and it is, that justification and eternal life are free gifts that we don't earn, and that it's just by faith, why do so many people teach that we have to do more to be saved? And I just think it's human nature. It's human nature to want to think that we did something. 
to earn our salvation. But beyond that, we have people with, um, with unholy desires that try to persuade people away from the truth. And that's what was happening here in Galatians. Uh, when he's talking about these people later in the book, in, in chapter 4, verse 17, he says, they zealously court you, these false teachers, these people that were saying, you have to do more than just believe. He says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Now, this is another thing that just is uh, part of human psychology, and there's so much, um, there's so much that is in Scripture that when we, when we dig into it, we can find out so much about human nature and our tendencies and the way that we uh, think and act and, and uh, why we do these things. But in this case, these people had an understanding of this that, hey, if we exclude these people and we say, you're not good enough to be part of us, then they understood that they would be treated like celebrities and that people would be trying and, and, and uh, just doing everything they could to try to be part of that group. And this is something that happens if you're in high school and you got this, like the cool kid table, and you go and you try to sit down and they, they say, what are you doing? Get out of here. Um, from, that on, from that point on, you're going to be thinking, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I not cool enough to sit at that table? And you'll go sit at that table, but you'll be thinking, man, I want to be at that table. And then you might think, well, what can I do? How can I change so that I can go be at that table? So I can sit with the cool kids. And that's what was happening. These false teachers came in and said, uh, you can't sit at the cool table. Okay? You're not part of the people of God because you're not under the law. You're not circumcised. You're not keeping the commandments. You're not living as a Jew. There's a similar problem in this church in Antioch. Now, uh, Peter, before I get into this, Peter was the one who was first sent to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Peter was called by God to go to uh, the church, uh, excuse me, to the house of um, Cornelius, okay? Cornelius was a Gentile, and to preach the gospel. And it was a big deal to get him to go do that. He didn't really have that mindset that, oh, I want to go preach to the Gentiles. And so uh, what the Lord did, uh, Peter was hungry, he fell into a trance, and the Lord appeared to him in a vision. And uh, there was a sheet that was brought down to him that was full of all these unclean foods, things that they weren't allowed to eat under the Mosaic Law. All kinds of creepy, crawly stuff. And the Lord says to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, No, I'm not going to do that. I've always kept the law. I'm not going to eat anything common or unclean. And the Lord said to him, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this happened three times. Three times. And after Peter had said no to Jesus three times, and the Lord responded to him, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. After that, he understood. And when then uh, he was called to go to Cornelius' house, he understood that God was saying of the Gentiles, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. Not that they were saved, but the things that were hindering Peter from going to the Gentiles were no longer in the way. And so uh, Peter, uh, when he was talking to Cornelius, he says, you know how un unlawful it is for a Jew to come in and eat with a Gentile. But God has shown me that he has made all things clean. Okay, so Peter really got this. He really understood. And he was expressing this in the church in Antioch. And so the Antioch is a Gentile city, and Peter was there, and he would have um, dinner with them. He would eat what they were eating. He would worship the Lord together with them as one body. And then we get here to this story that, Peter, or that Paul tells about this time in Antioch, in Galatians 2, 11 and following. He says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Now, if you think about this for a moment, this is a pretty tense situation, isn't it? You've got one apostle standing up in front of the whole congregation and calling out another apostle. 
tense moment. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now, I want to comment on this statement that they came from James real quick. When you get into Acts 15, you see that uh, James actually did not send these people with that message. Okay, uh, that, was, that was corrected in uh, the letter that the Jerusalem Council sent out to the Gentile churches. He's, he says, these people went out there saying that they were from us, but we did not send them with this message. Okay. So, um, yes, they came from James. They falsely claimed that, this, that their message was James's message. James also understood the gospel. So Peter would eat with the Gentiles, but when this group came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And I think probably he wasn't afraid of like, getting beat up or something like that. He was afraid that he would be excluded, kicked out of the cool table. I want you to take a moment and think about yourself in the situation of these Gentiles. You have been told that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone because of what Christ had done for you. And that you were part of the people of God, not, not that you were made a Jew, but that you were made part of this new man, this new body of Christ, something entirely different. And that you were called to have fellowship to worship together with no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And you've understood this and you've been um, seeing this played out when, when the Jewish people would dine with you and, and love you and care for you and give you a, a hug. Including Peter. And we're going to see Barnabas and others were part of this as well. What an illustration of the gospel this is. Jews and Gentiles did not get along. In Ephesians, Paul calls the law the middle wall of separation, and he calls it the enmity. The Gentiles hated the Jews because of the law, and the, law, and the Jews hated the Gentiles because of the law. The law is holy, righteous, and good. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the law, but because it's weak through the flesh, the law created this tension. And another function of the law was to keep Jews and Gentiles separate. Israel was supposed to be separate from the nations. And so for them to eat together and live life together would have been a huge... Um, encouragement, and a wonderful illustration of the gospel. And then all of a sudden, the behavior of these uh, Jewish brethren, including Peter, tells you you're no longer accepted. You're no longer, you're no longer one of us. I can't eat with you anymore. You're not good enough. Can you imagine how crushing that would be? And how confusing it would be? It would make you feel like everything that you had understood about the gospel was being called into question. Everything you understood about God's love for you was in doubt. This is why it was important for Paul to correct this. Okay? This is why he stood up to Peter in front of everybody. He goes on, he says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Anybody know what Barnabas means? This is a small enough group, somebody can shout it out. Son of encouragement, right. And that was not his given name, right? That was what people called him because of his character. Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. And even he's playing the hypocrite. Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, 
why do, you, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? He's saying, you haven't been living under the law. Why are you trying to say that they have to? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, and he doesn't mean sinners in the sense that we normally use it. He just means people who aren't, aren't under the law. Okay, So by nature, they're Jews. They're not the type that lives without the law like the Gentiles. But he's saying even we, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. What he means is that if he is living as if the law no longer applies and telling people, look, the law is done away in Christ because he fulfilled it. And then now he's saying, well, the law actually still does apply. That means that everything that he's done up to that point has been a transgression of the law. And this word transgressor, um, there's a, you know, when we talk about sins, we're talking about things that we should do and we don't do, or things that we shouldn't do and we do do, okay? That's basically what sins are, and it could be, it could be actions, it could be attitudes or thoughts or whatever. But a transgression is something different. A transgression is actually breaking a law, okay? And so what he's saying is if, if, I, if, if I've been living in such a way that we say that we're not under the law, and then I go ahead and I say now we are under the law, now all, all of a sudden I've broken all these laws, Everybody with me? Okay. He goes on. He says, For I through the law, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, I love this. I love this so much because despite the setting and despite the very serious nature of what was happening and the fact that Peter is standing up from before everybody and calling him out because he was to be blamed, that all these words are so very gentle. And Paul is even using language referring to himself in the way that he's, that, um, it's like he's turning the rebuke on himself, even though it's really Peter that's the one who's out of line. And he's reminding Peter, look, you know these things. You know, you know that you're justified by faith in Christ. You know that no flesh will be justified by the law. You know this. And when Paul says, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God, he's saying, Peter, you through the law, died to the law that you might live to God. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And the life which you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. So Paul's rebuke is just so, so full of encouragement and gentleness. You might notice that throughout this, Paul keeps referring to Jesus as Christ. He says, Christ, Christ, Christ. And then right here at the end, he says, the Son of God. And I think that the main reason he's doing this is because he's demonstrating to the readers, or excuse me, or to Peter, he's demonstrating to Peter that um, Christ is a gift of God's love. And that when, when we talk about Christ being crucified for us, we're talking not only about his love, we're also talking about God's love. And that Christ is not, you know, when we talk about 
um, the freedom that we have in Christ, it's not just Christ's will, it's also the Father's will. And so all of this implication is wrapped up in this, this short, simple statement, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Can't have it both ways. You can have Christ or you can have legalism. You can't have both. Paul then, having finished relating his statement regarding this um, event in Antioch with Peter, he turns towards these Galatians because they need to be called out to. He says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That word actually means like to give the evil eye, like who, you know, <laughs> somebody like bewitched them, like with magic. Okay, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? They understood they received the Spirit by the hearing of faith and not by the works of the law. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, this word perfect, it probably doesn't mean exactly like what we normally think of when we think of the word perfect. It means something like mature or complete. And so the idea is like you started off totally apart from the law and just by faith in Christ and now you're trying to mature through the flesh. It doesn't make any sense. Now, um, in, in the next little part, I'm going to meddle a bit. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we're all on the same page pretty much about, I think, the gospel, justification by faith, and uh, just knowing the teaching that this church has had for so long. Um, but sometimes our lives are still um, inconsistent with what we know to be the truth, Okay. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw out some of the things that Paul is talking about that do really call us towards repentance and change in the way that we interact with people, especially. Okay? And so um, I don't do this. I'm not meddling to condemn. I'm meddling, meddling in order to encourage. Okay? In Galatians 3.16, Paul says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. And he does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And then 3.19a, he says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, that's Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And then, Galatians three twenty six to 29, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. Now, uh, I'm not Jesus, okay? I don't think anybody here is Jesus. I think Jesus is still in heaven, and he's going to come back to earth, but he's not here now. But when we place faith in Jesus Christ, we are baptized into Christ, and we become his body, okay? And so all of us together are part of Christ. And so when... God gave a promise to the seed. He gives that promise is also to us. Okay? Because we are part of 
the seed is part of his body. So he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Let me go back. There's something here that I think is really important. And he's tying this together with the concepts that he was talking about when he says that for as many as you, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of those worldly distinctions are done away. And some of these things still cause division today. And there's a lot of other things that just have to do with things of the world that cause division today. People can't get along because they're in different generations. They can't get along because somebody's from the country and somebody's from the city. They can't get along because they have different politics. They can't get along because their skin color is different. They can't get along because they're from different classes, financially or socially. All those things are done away in Christ, every one of them. Because we're all one in Christ Jesus. And there's no believer in Christ who is accepted from that. Because we like commandments, Paul gives us a couple here. And if we want to be legalists, this is a good one to stop on and say, okay, how can we follow some commands if we want to be in Christ? So there's two of them here. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. There's your first commandment. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We have a couple others. Christ's commands are not burdensome. John says, uh, this is his commandment, that we would love one another and believe on Jesus Christ whom he sent. 1 John 3.23. Galatians 5.13, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When we think about Christian liberty... Well, let me put it this way. When I, when I first started to understand Christian liberty, I was like in college, and I had been in, involved in kind of a legalistic church, and it, this, it really wasn't put forward that we were f really free in Christ. And so I was just thinking about, well, I guess this means I can do that, and I can do that, and I can do that, and it, because it's not, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that, then therefore I'm free. But that's really not what Christian liberty is about. And yes, there's some, there's some truth to all that, but that's really not what Christian liberty is about. It, it goes back to this same concept that was happening with Peter when the Lord was bringing down that sheet and saying, rise, Peter, and kill and eat. There was something in Peter's understanding, which had to do with his culture, that was keeping him from being able to minister to the vast majority of people. It's because he was under the understanding that he was still under the law. And it wasn't until he could understand his Christian liberty that he could be free to minister to those people. Paul was a Pharisee. Like, do y'all get what that means? He was, he was like the strictest keeper of the law. He said that from his youth he was blameless under the law. Philippians 3. He was probably the youngest member of the Sanhedrin, which was this uh, group of, it was a small group, or 70-ish people that were um, leaders among the, the rabbis. And so he was just a meticulous keeper of the law. Just absolutely meticulous. And then God, ironically, called Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's going to have to go live his life, whereas if he were under the law, he would be constantly made unclean. 
because of every conversation he had, every hand he shakes, every embrace that he does, every meal he eats, would make him unclean under the law if Christ had not made all things clean. And so our liberty is not about what we can do. It's about the freedom that we have to serve out of love. He says again, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's going to talk a little bit more about this whole concept that um, the, the law really has only one purpose anyway. And that is to call people to love one another. And uh, in Romans chapter 8 and then compared with chapter 13, we learn that the righteous requirement of the law is that we would love one another. And that the re- righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us when we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And when he says according to the flesh in Romans, he means the same thing he means when he's talking about according to the flesh in Galatians, meaning through legalistic adherence to the law. We don't get the righteous requirement of the law if we're under the law. We get the righteous requirement of the law if we're walking in the Spirit and freedom. Now, he goes on a little bit later in chapter 5 to talk about the works of the flesh. And these works of the flesh, um, there's, there are a lot of different things he talks about, but I, um, there are a couple different sections here. And I really want to focus on one section. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. Okay. Now, those are all bad things, and they are worth discussing, but it's a different sermon. Okay. I want to talk about this next little section here where he talks about these works of the flesh. He says, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. And that word selfish ambitions, I think, is mistranslated. It should say something like um, party spirit. And I don't mean woohoo party. I'm talking about like, you know, different groups that hate each other. Parties. That's what that's talking about dissensions, heresies. The word heresy doesn't mean a bad doctrine in Scripture. The word heresy in Scripture means division. That's what it means. The, the reason why we have the word heresy to refer to really bad doctrines is because in the early church councils, when they would come to meet together and someone would put forth their belief that was just way out of line, people would shout, that's heresy, because they were saying, you're causing division. You're causing division with this bad doctrine. Okay, that's why bad doctrine, why we refer to that as heresy. But the word in Scripture means divisions. Envy. He goes on to talk about murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. But these things, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath party spirit, dissensions, divisions, envy. Those things all have to do with our relationships with one another and how we relate to one another in daily life and in the church. And on Facebook. Let's go on and look at this contrast, the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, this word peace here, love, joy, peace. Peace is the way we normally think about it because we have just way over-individualized all of the New Testament because I think of our, our culture. So we start to think of peace as like this, this inner feeling of calm, right? But that's very rarely what it means in Scripture. Maybe, maybe a couple of times in, in the Upper Room Discourse in John. That's it, okay? Every other time it has to do with an absence of conflict. It's an absence of conflict. <clears throat> and so 
Absence of conflict is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering. Your translation might say patience, which is, which is okay. It's, it is kind of part of that idea, but this is a, it's a stronger word than patience because it's not just the idea of waiting for something. It's waiting for something while holding a very heavy burden. It's waiting for something while suffering to do so. And if you have met a lot of people, you understand that sometimes loving somebody involves long-suffering because people can be really, really, really hard to get along with. But the one who's walking in the Spirit is willing because of the love that also comes from walking in the Spirit. Kindness. So I'm on Twitter, and I like Twitter. I know that sometimes people hate Twitter. <laughs> I like Twitter. And um, there's, there's, has been, this, this, this wasn't super recent, this is maybe a year ago, but there was a pretty loud group of uh, conservative Christians who were trying to make the argument that kindness is sinful on Twitter. And I'm just sitting here thinking, like, why hasn't anybody told the Holy Spirit? Because if kindness is sinful, then the Holy Spirit is producing kindness, then, you know, I think maybe it's, it's not that the Holy Spirit is wrong. Maybe. Kindness is what godliness looks like. So if you're, if you're angry and you're bitter and you're mean, you're not walking in the Spirit. And if the things you post on social media are angry and bitter and mean, they do not reflect the Holy Spirit. I don't care if you're right about whatever you're saying. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. It's ungodly. Gentleness. Gentleness. My goodness. That word can be translated leniency. How lenient are we with the people we disagree with? If you're going to be kind and you're going to love them and you're going to be long-suffering when they're wrong about something or they're doing something you don't like, then you can be gentle. And you might think, but it just makes me so angry. But that's where the self-control comes in. The Holy Spirit has got you. He's, he's got every single thing you need, and he leaves you no excuses for, for behavior that goes against his leading. And I'm so thankful that the word is so thorough. <laughs> God's word is so thorough. And, I, and when, we, when we really think about any kind of bad behavior that we want to do because it's gratifying to the flesh or whatever, the, God's word somewhere, usually many times, tells us exactly why we can't do it and it doesn't give us any excuses. But if we're walking this way, there's no law against that and nobody can, cond nobody can condemn it. That's what Paul's saying. Now, uh, the verse is wrong here. This should say, I think it's uh, Galatians 5.25. Um, I, I just mean the verse reference. He says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, the word translated walk here, I think, is mistranslated. Okay? It's not the normal word for walk, and this word doesn't occur anywhere else, I think, or maybe one other time in Scripture. Um, but it's, it's not the usual word for walk, and it doesn't mean walk. Okay? Um, this is, I put up here from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, uh, sometimes called Kittles. And uh, this is just talking about this word. It says, the interpretation of stoicheo in the New Testament as a synonym of peripeteo and paruomai. Okay, those two words, peripeteo and paruomai, do mean walk. Okay, those are the words that mean walk. 
It's undoubtedly ancient and has always found supporters, but if this were the correct meaning of this word stoicheo, the New Testament would be alone in that use of the term. Okay, meaning that everywhere else, it's, it's obvious that it doesn't mean this. Okay, even though people have said that for a long time. He goes on to kind of explain what he means. He says that it should be something like to be in harmony. Okay, to be in harmony. He says if our Christian life is fashioned in a as a new life in the Spirit, then let us be in harmony with the Spirit. That's, that's his uh, paraphrase of this verse. And he's so close. <laughs> he's so close. But when we, when we look at this and we see the phrase, be in harmony with the Spirit, we're thinking about our relationship with the Holy Spirit, aren't we? Right? But that's not the context. And the word with there is... It's not in the Greek. Uh, basically, what the Greek does is tell us that this is an indirect object and we have to supply the preposition. And I'm so sorry for all the grammar talk. <laughs> but all this to me, all, all this, if you just kind of boil it down to this thing, okay? I, I really think that this verse should be translated something like if we live by the Spirit, and we do, let us also be in harmony by the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also be in harmony by the Spirit. This isn't about my relationship directly with God. It's about my relationship with all of you guys and all your relationship with one another. This is a one another passage. Look, he, look how he goes on to explain this. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The truth of the gospel is that all of us are equal in God's eyes because all of us are completely unrighteous on our own and all of us have been given the righteousness of God freely. And all of the distinctions that separated us and make us mad at each other, those things do not interfere with that sameness that we have in the Lord. And we're all part of the same body. Every one of us. Every single person anywhere in the world who's ever believed in Jesus Christ. We're all one in him. And so because of that truth, we need to be in harmony with one another and not put each other down because of these distinctions. But more than that, more than just the truth of the gospel bringing us together and making us one, also the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts to do the exact same thing. And we've got to get out of his way. We've got to get out of his way. If you're a millennial like me, I'm an elder millennial, born in 81. Um, and you tell the boomers that you have in your life, I am thankful for your experience that you have in life and that you have lived through this world and seen a few things more than we have. And I love you. And then you go on Facebook and every other comment's like, okay, boomer. You're lying, right? You get that you're lying to your brother when you tell him that you love him. And the same thing if you're a boomer and you're on social media and you're saying, um, you're making fun of millennials for like, getting trophies for not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, first of all, <laughs> as a millennial, right? Um, I'm, old, I'm an old enough millennial that that wasn't my experience, but um, the younger millennials, they didn't give themselves the trophies. Y'all remember, y'all realize that? Okay. They, well, yeah, but it's... You should be, if you're going to make fun of somebody, it should be the boomers, right? <laughs> Who did it, right? The kids didn't buy their own trophies. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. 
So, but if, if, um, if you're out there and you're on social media and you're um, making fun of millennials all the time, and then you, you tell a millennial you love them, and then they, they go to your, your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever, and they, they read through it, they're going to think you're lying to them because you are. And John says, if you love God, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. We can't have a good relationship with God while we're tearing down those made in his image. We certainly very much can't have a good relationship with God when we're tearing down our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I think, you know, I, I just think our whole, our whole world, we need repentance. We need to live in the way that's consistent with the gospel and so that when we tell people, look, you know, you're saved by, you're justified by faith in Christ and not of works and that you're accepted in him because of what he's done and we tell people like that, tell people that, they're going to see in the way we live our lives that we really believe it. And when Jesus was about to go to the cross and he had a chance to pray with the disciples in the upper room. And the only really extended prayer we have recorded of Jesus. And at this very crucial moment, what is he praying? He's praying that those who would believe in his name would be one. And what does he say is the result? He says that if people will do this, then the Lord and the world will know that you sent me. So if we live in the Spirit, let us also be in harmony by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. And that's what most of this comes from. When we hate on other people, it's because we're conceited. We think we're better than them. Provoking one another, envying one another. It says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Don't blast them. Restore them. Don't try to win an argument. Try to win your brother. And as you do so, consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what godliness looks like. Is that we love each other and we bear each other's burdens. Someone's doing something wrong. Sometimes it can make us mad. But we've got to put away that anger. And we need to help them with that burden. The Free Grace Alliance is um, a ministry that I, I love very much. And I've been thankful these last couple of years to be the director of the Free Grace Alliance. And the Alliance is a, a ministry that our purpose is to advance the gospel. But uh, we do it kind of in a little bit of a different way. Um, we do it by connecting, encouraging, and equipping free grace people in ministries. And so what we do is we build relationships with all the free grace people in ministries that we know of, and we bring them together and help them to get to work, working together to advance the gospel. Because if we are trying to do this on our own, we're just absolutely getting crushed right, by the Lordship guys because they've got more money, they've got more people, and they're out there first sharing the idea that you have to work to earn your salvation. And so the Free Grace Alliance, we're trying to, we're trying to, be, um, we're trying to be a ministry that helps us get the word out to the whole world. And it's so important, and it's so important. We, um, you know, our, our good friend Charlie, has, he may have told you this before, um, but he, when he goes out into the field, he presents a survey to, usually when he's training pastors, he presents a survey to ask them, you know, what do you have to do to be saved? And he lists a whole bunch of things. And there's only one right answer, which is to believe in Jesus. And he asks them to check all that apply. And he gets it back, and there's always tons of checks on there, and very few say only believe. 
And it just tells us how much the gospel is needed. Okay? The gospel is just so needed. And it's, it's not that we just need to share, but we need to help these uh, people who are teachers to be grounded in it so that they can go on to teach others as well. And so the Alliance is only as strong as our members. And so if you'd like to become a member, you can scan this or you can go to freegracealliance.com and join. If you can see over there, it says um, there's a, a picture of a magazine cover that's Leading Grace. Uh, FGA members who are domestic, um, they all get a copy. Just make sure we have your mailing address. So um, anyway, I'm done with the pitch. <laughs> Actually, I'll leave it up in case you want to scan it. But um, I am just so thankful. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to come here and share the word with you. And I pray that this would be something that would touch our hearts and that we would go forward living a life that's uh, consistent with the gospel and that edifies all those around us and that the whole world can look at each and every one of our lives and think, wow, this person really does believe the truth about Jesus Christ." And I want to know more about him because of the way he's living. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ who has you know, broken down all the walls that separate us. We pray that our lives would be uh, full of um, love and joy and peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control especially in our interactions with one another. And that when our brethren, our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, are caught up in any trespass, Lord, we pray that uh, we could be an encouragement to them, we could help share their burden and restore them. Lord, let us be a people who are examples of your love. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.